Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Good. Second time trying to record this is a charm. We had a fun delay there for a minute where neither of us really realized that it was a delay until about a minute in. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was okay, though. It was all right. Uh, So yeah, we're marching on. It's almost 4th of July weekend. Um, By the time this comes out, of course, 4th of July will be over and that will be old news. But we're recording it before the 4th of July and we're kind of getting... Um, ready to have our weekend where we celebrate in the best way that we know how, which hopefully involves eating a lot of really good food and it is so my little water. Hopefully, water is involved in this somehow. Yeah, <laughs> my little guy's birthday is tomorrow. He's turning seven, which I'm so excited and sad about. But his birthday, he wanted me to make cake pops of the solar system. And let me tell you, this is just going to go down in history as one of the worst things I've ever made. I've like watched the video a thousand times and there's just no way I'm going to be able to make these things look like a solar system. And he's so picky. Like he, <laughs> he, <laughs> he knows wants everything there is to look exactly like it is. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You think I can screw up Saturn's ring? Did you know Uranus also has a ring? Did you know, I think Neptune has a ring? I had no idea. They're at different angles. It's a whole thing. It's, this is going to be a disaster. So I'm excited. But yes, my weekend includes a lot of food because it's, you know, a birthday, celebrating a, a little guy's birthday. I'm just yeah. devastated and happy, but it'll be fun. I know. It's really hard to believe that he is going to be seven already. It feels like he was just a little tiny guy I in know. a baby carrier when I first met you, and that's what it was. So, yeah, it's crazy to think that our little guys are are that old already. So To be fair, my kids is. have never been little, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He was a giant baby falling out of a baby carrier when you met him, but now yeah. he's just a giant seven-year-old. <laughs> perfect, perfect. So we'll get into the episode for this week. Uh, this story is, I think this is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard, just because the circumstances are so different yeah. than anything we've ever heard of before. And it involves catfishing, which is always really fascinating. I feel like a lot of people are really interested in that topic in general, so we're going to get a little bit of that um, to satisfy your catfishing curiosity this week. So pretty much once the internet was invented, it seemed like the concept of catfishing was born right away. And as I said, it's a topic that clearly fascinates all of us since they even made this entire amazing TV show about it called Catfish, which Melissa reminded me was actually based on a documentary called Catfish where Neve... was, I guess, catfished by a woman. And then he went on to make an entire show about that after his experience was discussed on MTV. I don't think I saw the original documentary. It is 
creepy because he reads all these messages from this lady and you find out later it's not who he thinks it is. But I think her, spoiler alert, I think her husband is the one that made up the term catfish. I don't know where it came from, but in the movie they talk about it. Like she's a catfish. She changes, you know, who she is for different circumstances and stuff. And I'd never, I don't think I'd heard that term really before then. So I'm like, dude, I hope he got that trademarked. He needed something out of that whole mess. But yeah, it was a documentary. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's a lot of cringe, so much cringe, but in the best way. Yeah. Yeah. It's perfect. So I guess maybe, um, if I would think back to reality shows that I ever watched in the past, Catfish is probably one of the only ones I can actually think of. Um, and so if you don't know what we're talking about when we say catfishing, I think most people probably do at this point, but if you don't know, it doesn't have anything to do with going out fishing and catching dinner. But a catfish is defined by Merriam-Webster, which it's funny that this is actually a definition now in the dictionary, Um, but it is defined as a person who sets up a false personal profile on a social networking site for fraudulent or deceptive purposes. So if you have heard of or seen the old MTV show called Catfish, then you know these are usually cases of people that are pretending to be someone else to lure a person into some kind of relationship with them. Sometimes it happens that the person being duped actually falls in love with the catfish and a whole lot of drama ensues when they find out that the person they thought they were talking to is actually someone completely different and oftentimes they have stolen photos and information from somebody else to use to pretend that they're that person. So the premise of the MTV reality show was to out the catfishers and to bring closure to those who were desperate to find out if they were even talking to a real person. The show was hosted by Neve Shulman and Max Joseph for seven seasons starting in 2013 before Max actually left and Kami Crawford took over. I haven't seen any of the Catfish episodes since it was a different two hosts on there, Mm -hmm. but um, the show is actually still on the air, which I also did not know. And the latest season actually premiered earlier this year. Did you know that Catfish was still airing on TV, Melissa? I honestly did not. But the funny thing is, yesterday I was listening to an episode of uh, Jody from Reality TV and Amanda from Amanda Loves to Hate Team Mom. They have like a side project where they like pick different episodes to watch. Well, they talked about this episode I never saw of Catfish where a guy thought he was in love with Katy Perry, like really actually thought it was Katy Perry and they like go to the UK to meet her. It's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And I have to watch that entire episode because it's just bonkers from beginning to end, just hearing them recap it. But like, I I kind of did what you did. And I think I watched a little early on, but then after like two or three seasons, you're like, well, I know what's going to happen next. Like you didn't know they were a catfish. They were a catfish. Right. (laughs) You would have just done a Google image search. You could have figured this out, but that was a long time ago. Now we know these things, except Yolanda from 90 Day Fiance, but everyone else seems to know these things. And it doesn't seem, it seems like it would be much harder to do that now. I'm sure it's possible. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. 2020 is not the time for catfish because I feel like most people, if you've been on social media at all, it's pretty easy now to spot a fake profile, or at least if you see a profile that gives you kind of some red flags, like you're probably not going to fall in love with that person unless they give you some more clear details that they're actually a real person. So I, I definitely feel like it was something that happened in the early 2000s and probably not as likely to happen now. Although I guess if the show is still running, people are still falling for it. So that, you know, I guess that tells you all we need to know. Right. So I guess now there's even spinoff shows like Catfish Trolls, where they go around and find these internet trolls that harass people online. And that is something that I definitely feel like I could get behind. That is the kind of reality trash TV that I would be 
totally interested in because how many times do we see internet trolls and we're just like, oh my gosh, who is this person? I know. I just Neve like is just a lot so for me. He's a lot of personality for me where I'm just like, okay, okay, let's just get on with the show. Just show me the facts. I don't need you talking in between. Yeah. It. People probably <laughs> say the same thing about me. Yeah. No, they probably don't actually. Melissa, you're, you <laughs> are the fan favorite. <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> so with the rise of social media and online dating, there has been an increasing opportunity for anyone to pretend to be anything they want. One study actually showed that one in 10 online dating profiles are fake. Another study showed that women are 50% more likely to give false or misleading information on their social profiles. Some other interesting statistics on catfishing that I found are that 64% of catfish are women, 24% of catfish pretend to be a different gender when creating their fake identity, 73% use photos of a different person, not themselves, and 53% of Americans admit to falsifying their own online profiles, which I thought was a really shocking statistic that 53% of people fake certain things on their profiles. That's a lot of people that are not being truthful with the way they're presenting themselves online, which I think is really interesting in this day and age of social media. Well, yes and no. I don't want somebody knowing where I live. So I could see being very vague on things like that. You know, I don't want to give all my information off. So if that's part of the percentage, then I do understand that. But if it's like, this is, I have put up a picture of Heidi Klum and meanwhile, I look like me, you're going to be, you know, I, I get that statistic, but I feel like people, not that you shouldn't be honest, but I, I'm, you know how I am. I'm very careful about everything. So I don't want to give up too much information. So yeah, maybe that makes sense. I don't know. It's still a lot. I get it. Yeah. So in general, it's been found that the most common reasons for catfishing are loneliness, boredom, and revenge. In many cases, there's a longstanding history of lying or abuse in their past, and they commonly have low self-esteem. Aside from the emotional damage that can come from learning that someone you thought might be really into you is fake, the instances of catfishing are usually harmless in terms of personal safety. You might get your heart broken, but you aren't super likely to be seriously injured as a result of catfishing. However, although it isn't likely, it does still happen where a catfish truly has sinister purposes for their victim. Catfishing can be a tool to lure someone into a dangerous situation and rarely murder. Some of the most publicized incidents of catfishing turned murder include episodes that we've already covered on this podcast, such as the stories of Mark Twitchell and Janelle Potter. But there are far more extreme cases of catfishing that have resulted in death as well. One of them is the story that we're going to tell this week about the bizarre catfish story that led to the murder of an innocent man in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And before we get into the details, we're going to tell you a little about where the story took place in this week's segment of We Googled This City. Virginia Beach is located in the southeastern part of Virginia, and as of the 2010 census, has a population of around 437,000 residents. A lot of these residents are military members and relatives, as Virginia Beach is home to three and a half bases. There's the NAS Oceana, FTC Dam Neck, the Army's Fort Story, and the half base, which is NAB Little Creek. It's known as a half base because while it's mainly located in Virginia Beach, the formal address is in Norfolk, Virginia. 
Virginia Beach has one of the largest landfills in the country, and it's called Mount Trashmore, which give it up for Virginia. That is the best name for (laughs) a landfill in the entire world. So the first fact I saw about this was they shoot their, you know, 4th of July fireworks from there, which I thought that's kind of weird, but I kind of get it. And so for some reason, because it's called Mount Trashmore, I had to Google more and just learn more because it's the craziest thing. Because I saw pictures and I was like, that doesn't look like a trash dump. Um, So then I went to visitvirginiabeach.com and here's a quote from it. I think it's really just a really cool place actually. So quote, World-renowned Mount Trashmore Park encompasses 165 acres and is comprised of two man-made mountains, two lakes, two playgrounds, a skate park, and vert ramp, I'm not sure what a vert is, and multi-use paths. The main mountain, Mount Trashmore, now 60 feet in height and 800 feet long, was created by compacting layers of solid waste and clean soil. So they've taken this whole area, and it's literally parks and lakes and all kinds of stuff. It's, It's really incredible. I feel like there's a Leslie Nope in Virginia that turned this landfill into a park, and she is 10,000 candles in the wind. So lastly, lots of your favorite names in sports and entertainment hail from Virginia Beach, including the happiest singer of them all, Pharrell, gymnastic superstar Gabrielle Douglas, and even though every article claims that she's actually from a nearby town, Virginia Beach really wants credit for Missy Elliott, which who blames them? So Mandy, I'm done with this week's Google the City, but do you know what time it is? <laughs> no. <laughs> get your show on. Get your show on. Get your show on. <laughs> I was going to ask a question because I know you had a new chicken this week, and I was going to end it with, Is that your chick? But then, well, I kind of did. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I could not figure out how to naturally do that, but I was very excited. Well, you, you did it anyway. It was yeah, I, I guess I did. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Perfect. So, although catfishing has been around just as long as chat rooms have, It's 2020 now, and as I said, most people are a little bit more internet savvy than they were back then. But this story took place in 2006, when catfishing wasn't really talked about much, and we hadn't really yet developed methods of vetting online profiles that we came across. This particular catfish story is different from the ones you may have heard about before, because the true victim in this story is a man that had absolutely nothing to do with the catfishing, but he was caught up in the middle of it anyway. His name was Justin Huff, and the story of how he lost his life is tragic and pretty perplexing. Justin was born on May 5th, 1982 in Indianapolis, Indiana, to parents Blaine and Teresa. He was known for his always happy personality and his zest for life, and he was described as a typical all-American boy who loved his friends and family. Growing up, Justin spent a lot of time with his father and grandfather doing things such as hunting and spending all day in a canoe fishing. Justin graduated from high school in 2001 and followed in his father and grandfather's footsteps by joining the armed forces. His grandfather had served as a merchant marine in World War II and his father served in the Air Force and this tradition inspired Justin to join the Marine Corps. He graduated from Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego in 2001 and was assigned to the maintenance battalion where he worked as a diesel mechanic. A short time into his career in 2003, Justin was deployed to Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He ended up serving two tours there. Upon returning from his second tour, Justin re-enlisted in the Marines, but he wanted to change directions a little bit. He started attending classes at the Navy and Marine Corps Intelligence Training Center in Virginia Beach. 
He was assigned to the Brigade Service Support Group 1, 1st Marine Logistics Group, Marine Expeditionary Force, based at Camp Pendleton. In March of 2005, Justin met a woman named Rebecca at a barbecue, and the two hit it off and began a relationship. They were so in love and ready to take the next step, and just five months later, in August of the same year, they were married. A few months into their new marriage, the couple got some exciting news when they learned that Becca was pregnant. When Justin learned that he was going to be a dad, he was over the moon about it. He was beyond excited about taking on his new role as a husband and father, and it was all he could talk about to his friends and fellow Marines. One of Justin's close friends said, quote, he talked about his wife, how excited he was to be a father. He was really looking forward to it. You could just tell when he talked about her and his soon-to-be-born child, he just lit up, end quote. It was after learning about the baby he had on the way that Justin decided to enroll in the intelligence school instead of being sent overseas again. He truly wanted to be present for his wife and child while also maintaining his integrity as a U.S. Marine. Another friend of Justin said, quote, he was your ideal Marine. He wanted to look good, you know. Marines pride themselves on looking good in uniform. He was a Marine's Marine, end quote. So it's pretty easy to see why it was extremely alarming when Justin Huff did not report for one of his classes on the morning of January 2nd, 2006. Because Justin had not requested any time off, this was considered, quote, an unauthorized absence, and no one who knew Justin thought that it made any sense or fit with who he was as a person or as a Marine. He just wouldn't blow off his responsibility that way. Marine superiors searched through Justin's room in the barracks, and that left them even more confused. Everything really appeared as normal. Justin's wallet was missing, but otherwise, the room appeared as though Justin had just stepped out for a moment and would be returning soon. The first lead the police had in this case was directly from another Marine who had spent time with Justin in the days leading up to his disappearance. The Marine told his staff sergeant that he'd actually just been out bowling with Justin, something that Justin did quite often with his friends, and that while they were hanging out, Justin told him the story about how a strange man who claimed to be an NCIS agent had approached him and spoken with him about a possible rape that took place several weeks earlier, right around Thanksgiving. The alleged officer indicated that he believed that Justin was involved in this rape. Justin told his friend that he really actually doubted the validity of it because when he asked this person to provide credentials that proved that he was with NCIS, the man wouldn't show him any, and the clothing this person was wearing didn't really even look like something an agent would wear. Upon learning this information, NCIS investigators quickly and easily determined that Justin was not currently under any sort of investigation by their agency. And now they were upset because an unknown person has apparently impersonated them. It became their top priority to find out who this man was and how he was involved in Justin's mysterious disappearance. What they learned was far from what anyone would expect. And we're going to get right back into those details and how catfishing ties into this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. We've somehow already made it to July, and although I can barely keep track of what day it is, the second I walk outside, I know it's definitely summer. It's so miserably hot and humid right now, the second I go outside with my kids, I feel totally wiped out. Thankfully, Hydrant is there to help me get back up and running more quickly than ever before, so I don't need that nap my kids were never going to give me anyhow. Hydrant is a refreshing electrolyte powder that's mixed directly into your water to both efficiently and effectively hydrate your body. It hydrates you quickly and keeps you going for longer. So I know what you must be thinking, which is, how does it taste? 
Hydrant is made with real fruit juice powder, so it's delicious and refreshing and has great flavors, like the just-in-time-for-summer one, which is iced tea lemonade and fruit punch. I'm a big fan of the grapefruit flavor myself. It's not too sweet, but it still has enough flavor to encourage me to finish that glass of water. And it's especially helpful after spending all day sweating in the Florida heat that typically zaps my energy. Drinking Hydrant makes me feel alive again. I wanted to switch my morning Diet Coke to something that was better for me, but I still need that caffeine. So I switched to Hydrant Plus Caffeine, which contains 100 milligrams of caffeine that comes from green tea. After drinking one, I feel refreshed and hydrated without getting those nasty headaches from the lack of caffeine. Not only is it delicious, it's backed by research and even pro athletes and Hollywood celebrities like Ashley Green swear by it. Hydrant starts at just $1 a pack for a 30-day supply, which is way less than what I'm paying for my daily Diet Coke habit. Plus, you can save even more with a subscription. We've got a special deal for our listeners to save 25% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com murder or enter our promo code murder at checkout. That's D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T dot com slash murder and enter promo code murder for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com slash murder and enter promo code murder to save 25%. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. I struggle with focus. If you watch me clean one room in my house, you would understand. I start at one spot, then I get distracted and I'm on to something else, struggling to complete what I started out with. I have 3 million different thoughts going on all the time. And sometimes when life is already stressing you out, having a hard time focusing makes it that much harder. Luckily, Focal Plant-Powered Wellness has been a huge help for me, as its stacks use nature's best ingredients to help me focus during the day and sleep at night. Life never just stops, no matter what else is going on. It's so easy to get burnout or feel overwhelmed. Focal offers both day and night options, and I'm really loving Focal Day. It combines premium CBD plus stress-fighting adaptogens that help reduce brain fog, which is my natural state, helps to increase my productivity, and turns my creativity on high. One thing I struggle with, especially as a mom, is feeling overwhelmed, which leaves me being short-tempered. Focal has really helped me deal with everyday stressors, so I don't feel overwhelmed and I'm ready to take on the day, whatever the heck it has in store for me. Focal Day has ingredients from Mother Nature, such as lion's mane, L-theanine, vitamin B6, bacopa monnieri, and premium CBD. Focal takes something that is already amazing, their premium CBD, and stacks on five stress-fighting adaptogens and calming botanicals for the ultimate daytime supplement. The adaptogens help your body resist symptoms of stress, including anxiety and fatigue, increases mental alertness, concentration and productivity, and reduces brain fog and brings your body and mind back to balance. Plus, there are long-term benefits for a healthy mind. Focal products are vegan, non-GMO, manufactured in an FDA-approved GMP-compliant factory, third-party tested, all tests are actually available on their site, and day and night are also True ID certified, a rarity in the CBD space. Best of all, Focal offers a 60-day money-back guarantee. Love it or pay $0. Use code MOMS for 15% off your order. Go to Focal.com, that's F-O-C-L.com, and use code MOMS for 15% off your first order. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were just about to get into what the NCIS investigators uncovered while looking into the disappearance of 23-year-old Corporal Justin Huff. In the very early hours of the investigation, officers contacted Justin's wife, Becca, to ask her when she had last heard from her husband. Becca told them that she had just talked to him the night before, right around midnight, and he told her that he was going to bed at that time. 
I'm not entirely sure what time roll call typically is at a military intelligence school, but I'm sure it's probably pretty early, meaning that Becca spoke to Justin just hours before he failed to show up for class. As it would turn out, Justin lived in one of the only two barracks buildings to have video surveillance, so they reviewed the tapes to see when Justin was last seen coming or going from his room. What they found was video proof that Justin exited his dorm shortly after his wife spoke to him at midnight. Justin could be seen leaving his room and then leaving the building before going out of sight, and that was the last verified time that Justin was seen. After asking around, investigators learned that just two days before Justin went missing, a man was seen at the barracks asking around for him. Private Richard told officers that a man came to the front desk of the barracks and asked if they knew how he could get in touch with Justin. Private Richard said the man was wearing a black tool t-shirt, the band, not like actual tools on the shirt, and a motorcycle leather jacket, and that he got into a pickup truck in the parking lot and had a motorcycle in the bed of that truck. A description of this man was then circulated throughout the base, and it didn't take long for NCIS to get an even bigger lead. A group of Marines happened to notice a pickup truck with a motorcycle in the back parked in a parking lot, and they approached the vehicle. Inside, there were three men, but the Marines confronted the driver specifically about having something to do with Justin's disappearance. Although the driver denied having any knowledge of what they were even talking about, one of the Marines acted fast enough to grab the driver's identification. So for the first time, investigators had the name of a person of interest, and his name was Cooper Jackson. Cooper Jackson was an intelligence specialist in the Navy, living on the same base that Justin lived on. He was always polite and respectful, and there was really nothing out of the ordinary about him. Cooper was born in a small town in southwest Virginia and had joined the Navy to expand his horizons and experience the world. On paper, he really had a lot in common with Justin Huff, but other than their similarities, investigators couldn't find anything that would suggest that the two even knew each other. In fact, they believed they had never met before at all. But as the NCIS agents kept digging, they found a key that would shock everyone. They learned about a woman named Samantha that Cooper had been having an online relationship with. As you may have guessed, Samantha was not her real name. The person behind the fake profile was a 22-year-old hotel clerk named Ashley Elrod, and it was her actions that actually set this entire thing into motion. Ashley had been catfishing people since she was just 15 years old. While most people who catfish use the internet as their preferred method of luring victims in, she had a much more creative way of going about it. What had always worked for her in the past was dialing random phone numbers on the Marine Corps base, and when someone answered, she would pretend she'd accidentally called them before introducing herself with a fake name and trying to establish a relationship with the Marine on the other end. That's such a weird thing to just randomly call people. Especially yeah. in 2005. I feel like that's something I did when I was little <laughs> or even yeah. a teenager. I would do that. But I don't I think in the early 2000s, you would think Internet would be, you know, the, the mode of doing this. So one night in November of 2005, Ashley did just that. And it just so happened that Cooper Jackson was that random person that she spoke with. After hearing her voice, Cooper felt some level of attraction to her. She introduced herself as Samantha and flirted with him a little before they agreed to talk again later. What ensued was a full-out romance, sort of. It was actually more of a lust-filled relationship than anything else, but Cooper was completely enthralled with this woman that he had never met before. Before he knew it, Cooper was spending hours a day on the phone with Ashley, thinking that her name was Samantha. 
One source says that they would sometimes talk on the phone as many as 50 to 70 times per day. Okay, I don't really understand how that's even possible because I guess maybe if these are conversations that are lasting for like two or three minutes, but how do you call the same person 50 to 70 times in one day? I don't understand. No, I don't. There's no one I want to talk to that much. That's no. (laughs) Yeah. So during these conversations, Samantha described herself to Cooper as pretty much the total opposite of what she actually was in real life. She told him that she was five feet tall, weighed 100 pounds. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. She told him that her family was from Texas and they had a lot of money. They owned three homes in the Outer Banks and that she was going to school and was an art history major. She allegedly lived about two hours away from where Cooper was stationed, which put just enough distance between them to make it more challenging for them to meet in person. None of what she said about herself was true at all, but she convinced Cooper that it was by sending him photos that she had stolen from another woman. The pictures that she sent Cooper weren't just any pictures. They were very provocative and included several nude photos. Although Cooper was a fairly good-looking young man, he was sometimes socially awkward and he had never really been in a relationship before, so when he was getting all of this attention from someone who he believed was the total package, he became completely infatuated with her. After several weeks of this really steamy back and forth between them, Cooper started trying to set up a time to finally meet Samantha face-to-face. Of course, Every time they made plans, something would come up and she wouldn't be able to make it. In one example, she claimed that she had been in a car accident and that she was in the hospital. And another time, she agreed to fly in for the Christmas holiday to meet Cooper's family. But when Cooper went to the airport to pick her up, she never showed. And he actually stayed there and waited for 13 hours Mm. before he realized that she was not coming. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. That's a long time. And I understand if you are expecting someone on a flight and sometimes flights do get delayed. So I can understand waiting for a while, but 13 hours, that's half of a day that he stayed there and waited. And that just makes me sad for him in a way that he thought she was coming and he stayed there and stayed there and stayed there. And she just never showed up. That's really messed up. Yeah. So after that happened, Cooper finally started to question whether or not this Samantha person really wanted to be in a relationship with him. By this time, though, Cooper was in love with Samantha, and he wanted her to take it just as seriously as he was. And he was starting to get really frustrated that this person who claimed to want to be with him seems to be just refusing to meet him. Instead of doing what some might do and just blow her off and move on, Cooper actually became obsessed with trying to find her. Since they had been communicating primarily through the phone, Cooper was able to use her cell phone number to look up an address. When he confronted Samantha and said he was going to come to her house, she brushed him off and told him that it actually wasn't her address, but it was one of her friends, and she urged Cooper not to go over and, quote, bother her friends. In reality, though, the address that Cooper had was the address of the fake Samantha, who was actually Ashley Elrod, and she was inside the house at the exact moment that Cooper figured out where it was. Ashley was starting to get really freaked out now, and she was afraid that Cooper was on the verge of finding out the truth about who she was and to find out that she'd been lying to him this whole time. But Cooper decided that he'd finally had enough, and he told Samantha he wanted to break up with her. This seemed like a perfect out for her, so she agreed to the breakup. But she made a fateful mistake by trying too hard to push Cooper away. She ended up telling Cooper that she had gone to a party around Thanksgiving time and that there was a lot of alcohol and sex happening at this party and that she had slept with someone there, which was later verified to be a true story. 
The intent behind telling Cooper about this was just to turn him off and reinforce this idea that he did not want to be in a relationship with her, but her plan backfired terribly. When Cooper heard that his so-called girlfriend slept with another guy, he refused to believe that she had done so willingly, and he pretty much decided on his own that she must have been raped, and this made him furious. Cooper proceeded to create an entire false story in his own mind about what happened to Samantha. He insisted that she got drunk and then she was taken advantage of, and then essentially he started interrogating her for more details. At some point, Ashley decided to take her lies even further, and she told Cooper that he was right and that she had been assaulted, and she even added in some more fake details of her own. She said the party was on base and that a bunch of Marines were there. Question though, why would she tell the story that it was on base and she hasn't been able to meet him, but she was there? That seems even crazier. Yeah, it does seem really crazy, but of course I feel like with catfish stories, like there's always these little slip ups that I guess just right. kind of go through the cracks and they don't you don't notice it. You don't think about it until after the fact. And you're yeah. like, wait a minute, that was that was a weird thing, you know, right. that she said that. So I think it was probably something like that in this case. Yeah. Um, but now Cooper was thinking that it was a Marine who raped his girlfriend. And the more he thought about it, the more angry he got about it. It became Cooper's number one mission to find the person responsible for hurting her to get him started on his hunt. Ashley offered up a completely contrived description of a man that Cooper should be on the lookout for. It was a very generic description, but unfortunately, it was a description that ultimately caused Cooper to focus in on Justin Huff. This part of the story sounds completely absurd, and that's because it is, but this is exactly how NCIS agents believe it went down. Cooper was walking around the base one afternoon, and he happened to see Justin Huff, who happened to look like the person he believed was guilty of a rape. Right then and there, without ever having talked to or knowing anything at all about Justin, Cooper decided in his mind, on his own, that Justin was the one responsible. Wow. Since Justin was wearing his uniform, Cooper was able to get his name. Once he zeroed in on the name Huff, he went back and asked Samantha if that sounded familiar. Cooper was very persistent about it and pretty much beat her down until she finally said yes and that it was somebody with that name that was involved. And from there, Cooper began to devise a plan to find Justin again and somehow interrogate him about this alleged rape. The way he decided to do that was to impersonate an NCIS agent. And we're going to get right back into what happened next after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. Recently, I wanted to build a capsule wardrobe. You know, like those Pinterest boards of people that have their lives together and they have certain pieces that can match lots of other pieces and so on and so on until everyone thinks you have your life together. You know, like a real grown up. I wasn't sure where to start, but I saw an ad for Stitch Fix and decided to give it a try. And I'm so glad I did. Stitch Fix is a personal styling company that brings the world of fashion right to your door. With just a $20 styling fee every month that's actually credited towards anything you keep, Stitch Fix is like having your own personal stylist for a fraction of the cost. You can schedule your fix at any time, plus there's no subscription required, and shipping, returns, and exchanges are easy and free. Stitch Fix stylists pay attention to what you're looking for and what you're requesting, as well as review photos of outfits you've uploaded. And they even have a style shuffle where you can thumbs up or thumbs down lots of different clothing options, giving your stylist everything they need to know about you and your personal style. 
The hardest part about shopping is really figuring out just what you want. But Stitch Fix knows style and has access to amazing clothes to help you find what works for you. To get started, go to stitchfix.com slash moms to set up your profile and they'll deliver great looks personalized just for you in your colors, styles, and budget. Finding clothes that are long enough for me is always an issue. My stylist, Kim, takes that into consideration when she sends me my fixes. So my shirts, my pants, all of it is always nice and long so I feel comfortable in everything I put on. Plus, it's all beautiful and has added lots of variety to my wardrobe. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash moms and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash moms for 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. stitchfix.com slash moms. One thing my husband and I have been putting off is putting together our wills. We've talked about what we would want to happen in a worst case scenario, things like where we want our kids to go if we passed away, and even those decisions people have to make in the hospital when a loved one isn't able to make healthcare decisions for themselves. But we didn't have any of it in writing. And guess what? Without it being in writing, it really doesn't mean anything in the eyes of the law. That's why I'm so glad we've partnered with Trust and Will to both share with you guys as well as to create my own. Trust and Will provides an easy-to-use website. So even if the only thing you know going into starting your trust or will is that you want something in place if anything should happen to you, trust and will guides you every step of the way. It takes just 15 minutes to finish an online will or trust starting at $69, plus free printing and shipping of your documents in beautiful folders to keep your documents safe. Plus all wills and trusts include power of attorney and important health documents. I went to the Trust and Will website and the prompts were easy to understand and asked me simple questions to help decide what I needed to choose to have both peace of mind for myself and my family. My biggest concern is having my kids cared for in case something would ever happen, so it was a huge weight off my shoulders to complete this process. I also appreciated that since my husband and I have different wishes in certain healthcare situations for ourselves, we were able to specify what we'd want and no one ever has to guess on our behalf. Visit trustandwill.com slash momsmurder to automatically receive 10% off your purchase of a trust or will-based estate plan. Again, visit trustandwill.com slash momsmurder to automatically receive 10% off your purchase of a trust or will-based estate plan. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were just getting into how Justin Huff ended up in the crosshairs of Cooper Jackson and a woman named Ashley Elrod, who had catfished him and led him to believe that she had been raped by Justin. Cooper figured the best way to lure Justin into a conversation with him was by impersonating an NCIS agent. In the two days leading up to Justin's disappearance, Cooper contacted him several times and presented himself as an agent conducting an investigation into a rape that Justin was believed to be involved in. Justin had nothing to hide, and being the upstanding Marine he was, he wanted to cooperate fully with any investigation involving himself, as well as to clear his own name of any wrongdoing. For some reason, Justin agreed to meet Cooper outside to discuss this matter on the night that he was last seen leaving his dorm room and never returning. I imagine this guy Justin is married, he has a baby coming, and he knows he hasn't done anything, so okay, I'll just talk this through, and like, obviously you don't want this to blow up, so if you feel like you can have this quiet conversation with somebody, explain everything, say, I wasn't there, prove you weren't there, that's much easier than having this giant investigation and, you know, dragging your name through the mud. So I I can see how you would think like, well, maybe this is just like, let's just get this over with, Um, especially because he knows he hasn't done anything. So when the real NCIS agents who were investigating Justin's disappearance learned that they were being impersonated, it made them obviously very mad. There were over two dozen officers called to help work on the case. As soon as officers got the name Cooper Jackson to go on, they immediately decided to go to his dorm, 
which was just on the other side of the base from where Justin lived. When they knocked on the door, Cooper opened it and said, quote, oh, thank God you're here. There's something I wanted to talk to you about, end quote. This, of course, intrigued the agents, but when they asked him if he knew who Justin Huff was, Cooper said no. Officers decided to use a little bit of a ruse to bait Cooper into admitting that he did know Justin. They asked him if he was aware that the barracks lobby was equipped with video and audio recording. It wasn't, but the officers already knew that Cooper had been to the barracks looking for Justin a couple of days before he went missing. When Cooper was confronted with this ruse, he began to backtrack and explain why he was there and why he was looking for Justin that day. He claimed that they had been out at a bar drinking and got into a confrontation with a Marine that he believed had the last name Huff. Cooper claimed that Justin left his cell phone on the table, so the next day he took it to the barracks twice to try and return his phone. The officer asked Cooper where that phone was now, and of course, Cooper said he didn't have it anymore. He said he thought it would look bad and like he stole it if he was caught with it, so he just threw it away. So you get in a bar fight with some guy, he leaves his phone, you're like, gosh, you know what I'm going to do now? Let me return this. I want to return his phone. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So to the NCIS agents listening to all of this, it sounded like a bogus story. You can call it intuition if you want, but they believed at that moment that Justin Huff was dead and they needed to find out exactly what happened to him. As we mentioned before, both Justin and Cooper lived on base, but in different buildings. And as luck would have it, the buildings they each lived in were the only two buildings in the entire base that had video surveillance. Wow. Investigators had the footage of Justin leaving his dorm room that night, but now they needed to prove that Cooper also left his dorm room around the same time or shortly before. Sure enough, surveillance footage showed what they already believed was true. Cooper was seen taking duffel bags from his room down to his car, and they even believed that they could see the imprint of a gun that Cooper had concealed on his body. This was enough evidence to put Cooper in custody and transport him to their office to interrogate him about what he was doing that night. For the first two hours of the interrogation, Cooper continued to insist that he did not know who Justin Huff was, but after a while, it appeared that Cooper realized he couldn't lie his way out of this, and he finally broke down and told the story of what really happened. He told the investigators all about Samantha and what led to his belief that Justin was guilty of rape, and he explained that he had confronted Justin more than once about this incident. He admitted that after speaking to Justin for the first time, He had his doubts that Justin had anything to do with it, but that on New Year's Eve, after drinking alcohol in his room, he managed to convince himself that Justin was lying and that he did have something to do with it. So Cooper called up Justin in the middle of the night on January 1st and essentially told him that if he wanted to clear his name, Justin needed to go with him. So remember, all along, Cooper is pretending to be an agent. And even though Justin had his doubts about that, as Melissa said, he didn't want to be wrong and get in trouble by not obeying this NCIS agent. So he went with him. Justin got into the car with Cooper and they drove to the Outer Banks to a location that Cooper had already picked out. The whole way there, Cooper was questioning Justin and actually believing that he was telling the truth and that he wasn't involved. Cooper was clearly struggling with this as he went back and forth several times during these conversations. However, Cooper explained that at that point, he knew he was already guilty of breaking several laws. He had impersonated an NCIS agent, and now he had kidnapped an innocent Marine. Instead of facing the consequences of those actions, Cooper decided that the only way out of this horrific mess was to murder Justin anyway. 
When they got to the remote location in the woods, Cooper instructed Justin to get out of the car. He then got him on the ground and used his knee to hold Justin down while pointing a gun at him. He admitted that he told Justin he wasn't really with the NCIS and that this was all about a rape he believed Justin had committed. Cooper said that Justin begged for his life and swore on his unborn child that he hadn't hurt anyone and certainly had not raped a woman. The most disturbing part of this is that Cooper freely admitted to the officers that he knew Justin was innocent, but that he knew he couldn't get away with letting him go. So Cooper took out his knife and cut Justin's throat twice. He said he cut him the second time because he didn't want Justin to suffer and he wanted him to die faster. My gosh. When Justin was dead, Cooper lit his body on fire and then found a location to bury him. After Cooper laid out this horrific confession, he agreed to take officers to the spot where Justin was buried, and he told them where they would find other evidence that he had gotten rid of in the process. Even though Cooper had provided a thorough confession, prosecutors still had to locate all the evidence necessary to prove that what he said was the truth. Of course, false confessions are a thing, so they need more than just a detailed confession to take someone to trial for murder. A group of fishermen would ultimately lead police to the very evidence they needed. While fishing on the lake at Dam Neck, the individual spotted a suspicious silver item and reported it to police. Justin Huff's cell phone and wallet containing his identification was later found in this same lake. Divers for the Navy voluntarily went down to look for more evidence, even though the water is very murky and has low visibility, and they were able to find even more evidence. They found handcuffs, a shovel, and the knife used to kill Justin. Considering all the factors and having the evidence to prove it all, the Navy was seeking the death penalty for Cooper Jackson, which is really interesting because that is something that had not been done for years. Cooper pled guilty yeah. to the murder, and his defense team worked hard to spare him the death penalty and get a life sentence instead, based on the extremely odd circumstances that led to this murder and the fact that Cooper had never been in any legal trouble or any trouble with the Navy. Since Cooper pleaded guilty, all that was left was to decide his fate. The sentencing hearing lasted for three days, and prosecutors called on Ashley Elrod to testify as a key witness. Up to that point, Cooper had never seen the real woman behind the Samantha alias. He was visibly stunned when she walked into the courtroom to deliver her testimony. Ashley cried throughout most of what she told the court. She explained how she had been catfishing for years, and it was her way of connecting romantically with men who may have not given her the time of day in real life. She explained that she suffered from a very low self-esteem, and that it felt good having the attention of these Marines and sailors. Ashley tearfully admitted that she had lied about being raped, and it was clear from her testimony that she was very remorseful for what she had just done to set this whole thing in motion. Also during the hearing, Cooper addressed Justin's family directly and apologized for what he had done. He told the court that he now realized that there were numerous red flags and signs along the way that he was being deceived, but he refused to believe it. In the end, they ended up sentencing him to life without parole. As for Ashley, officials believe that she truly had no idea that Cooper was going to murder someone and that this was not a scheme that was concocted between herself and Cooper. According to officers, there was no crime that she could be charged with. Catfishing is not illegal, and she did not conspire to murder Justin Huff. Several people disagree and believe that she had some level of culpability here and that Justin Huff would still be alive if it weren't for Ashley's actions. However, she was never charged with a crime and did not spend any time in jail. She has since stated that she's in counseling and that this situation has ruined her life and she doesn't wish to be part of any media coverage or interviews about it. 
NCIS agents said they felt she was truly remorseful and she never dreamed that her actions would have led to the murder of an innocent man. Wow. Yeah. So this story to me has some parallels of the um, Tall Hot Blonde documentary. I can't remember uh, the guy's name in it where the two guys that work together are in love with this girl they meet online and she pits them against each other and they're all in this competition, you know, of getting her affection and one guy kills the other one and then finds out this was not the person that either one of them thought they were talking to. But in this case, she, you know, NCIS doesn't think she had anything to do with, you know, any of the murder, but she was trying to get out of this. And obviously, had she never met him, these things wouldn't have happened, but there wasn't anything they could charge her with. I'm actually wonder, I've thought about this before, like how long until we have catfishing laws, which I know sounds kind of silly, but these things happen. How long until, you know, if you, uh, a murder occurs on, after a catfishing incident, can you be charged with something? Because these things happen a lot. I mean, not, I shouldn't say a lot, but these things have happened. How is there not any sort of internet protection catfish law? Yeah. You know, well, I, yeah, something. I mean, I tend to agree with you on that because even aside from, you know, somebody being terribly murdered, um, I feel like there's a lot of things that can go wrong as a result of catfishing that would mm-hmm. make somebody's life miserable or, you know, cause a a serious problem because someone decided to do something like this. And I am kind of surprised that there aren't any laws that make it some kind of a crime, even if it's not, it doesn't have to be a felony or anything crazy, but I am surprised that there's no repercussions for people who do this kind of thing and then potentially ruin somebody's life. Like you said, like in most cases, I feel like it's just a case of you're upset, you're mad, maybe you're heartbroken, but there are cases where a catfish will actually turn someone's life upside down and ruin it. Or in, you know, the worst cases, somebody will get murdered. And I feel like I'm a little bit on the fence with whether or not I think, um, this woman in this story is, should be held accountable. Um, on one hand, I do think that she has some responsibility because she had every opportunity to say no, that didn't happen. She didn't have to give these fake details to him to, to keep fueling his fire, yeah. but she did, you know, and there was no reason for that. And, uh, but at the same time, I agree, there was no crime committed and she did not actually tell him to kill anyone. So I'm very torn on that. And I'm very on the fence about whether or not I think she should have a punishment for her part in the crime, but it does sound like she feels really bad. And she, yeah, she recognizes that what she did was a terrible thing. Right. So the one I was talking about before, I mean, that lady was in the middle of it and knew and encouraged and all this kind of stuff, or at least, you know, the documentary I watched on it. Um, that's how they portrayed it. Um, but nothing happened to her and somebody ended up murdered and she knew it was coming. She knew it was coming this whole time. This girl, I think she was trying to get out of it and she had made mistakes and she was trying to like, whatever will make this guy leave me alone and not fully thinking that through what this could mean. And, you know, it's lies upon lies upon lies upon lies. And then this happens, you know? So I don't know. I just, I'm actually, I don't actually have a know how I feel about it. I just feel terrible for all the families involved in this because it's horrific. But I just am curious as to like when this will happen. I feel like there's going to be a law that comes into play at some point where people say if a crime is committed as a result of catfishing, you can be held culpable. I just feel like that the day is coming for that. Yeah, for sure. I totally would not surprise me at all. All right. So it is the beginning of the month, first week of the month. So we are going to have our hero segment. And 
we have picked a wonderful, lovely hero for this month. Uh, yes, this month. Sorry. I was going to mm-hmm. say week. And then I, I don't know. I keep messing it up because when we do Patreon episodes, I don't remember to say month and not week. And now I'm confused because we just recorded that. I'm all mixed up. So, yeah. So this <laughs> month for our hero segment, um, we have a really awesome one I'm really excited about. So, Melissa, do you want to share our hero story this time? Absolutely. So this is from Nicole F. She said, hi, ladies. I've loved every minute of talking chickens, diet, coke, and murder. Okay. I've kept that in there. So (laughs) it says, my nomination is my amazing co-teacher of six years. I really don't feel like teachers are given the amount of credit they deserve. True that. But especially my wonderful co-teacher, Lisa. With the current state of events, she has gone above and beyond the classroom walls with home visits, constant Facebook messenger, and a never-ending amount of phone calls. She has inspired me to become an even better teacher. She changes little lives every day to which on the last Zoom call of this year, with tear-filled eyes, we just kept waving to our little third and fourth graders because we didn't want to let go or push the red button to disconnect. That makes me want to cry. She warms the room with her smile and fills the room with laughter. There is not one single event that sticks out because my entire six years of working with her has been life-changing to not just be a better human, but a better teacher and mother like her. We sadly found out our school program, located in an impoverished urban district, was having its funding cut and therefore the K-6 through part of where we work is closing. I'm so happy to know that what she taught can never be forgotten, but even more, I have gained one of my closest friends. Cheers to all the amazing teachers because sometimes you just need to hear... You are crushing it. How oh my sweet. gosh. <laughs> I know. Yes, I know. And I think we all have a soft spot for um, for our teachers right now, especially given that everybody has had their kids home and we've all kind of had a little taste of homeschooling. I feel like maybe not now because it's summertime, but at the very end of the last school year, I feel like we all kind of gained a new appreciation for teachers. So yeah. I really love this hero um, for this month. I absolutely agree that teachers need to be recognized. And I love this hero. I'm so glad that we picked this one this month. Yeah, this is awesome. And Nicole, you're a hero too. That's what a great team these two had, you know, to teach these little kids. And I literally, I can like picture my head, even though I have no idea what Nicole and Lisa look like, I can just picture two, you know, people just waving at these kids and not wanting to hang up on the last Zoom call. Like that just touches my heart so much. So thank you so much for sharing that. That was incredible. If you have a hero that you want to nominate, you can email us at lastthingbeforewego at gmail.com and just put hero in the subject line. So we make sure when we're scrolling through, we find it. Perfect. All right, guys. Well, that was the episode for this week. Uh, We will be back next week at the same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase
Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.